You can turn to Esther chapter 10. I've had some people, both young and old, comment to me that this is very short. And I said to them, the sermon may not be. Don't base a sermon on the length of the text. So, enjoy this short text. (laughs) King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and all the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask indeed that uh, you would give us wisdom and insight to the understanding of your word. That we would understand not just uh, what it says, but help us to understand what it means, which can often be far more difficult. So Father, also help us to understand how it applies to us. For this was given not just to provide some uh, intellectual information to your people, but I believe that it, it was written here for our instruction, our admonishment, our rebuke, our training in righteousness, and so much more. And so grant us of the Holy Spirit for this, and even for the things we don't know we need, with regard to this text. In Jesus' name, amen. I have to admit that I was not prepared, uh, not for the sermon, but I was not prepared for the events that unfolded uh, on the 8th of November. Being a normally pessimistic soul, And uh, seeing all of the polls, I thought things would go one way and things went another way. But it wasn't just that. I was not prepared for the responses that emerged since then. I was not prepared for the amount of anger, bitterness, hatred on both sides that emerged as a result of the election. We have a tendency as human beings to make our person a savior and to make the other person an antichrist. We have a tendency as people, particularly uh, those who do not know God, but 
even those who know God, to depend upon the government for well-being in ways that are unhealthy and even idolatrous. And I think there's a warning here in the end of Esther about that very thing. I think that as we think about the reality that God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, uh, that perhaps part of it is this text this day to remind us of these things. Our big idea this morning is that Christ is the one who works for the welfare of the church. It'll take us a few moments to get there, but we'll get there. So hang with me, so to speak, on this ride. Let's start with the, with the notion that the welfare of the church or the well-being of the church does not depend upon human government. As, we, as I mentioned, um, this is a very short text. This is a very short chapter. It is not the shortest chapter in the Bible. That recognition goes to Psalm 117, as I verified this morning because I mistakenly thought this certainly has to be the shortest chapter in the Bible, and I was wrong. See, there's a theme here. I was wrong. <laughs> okay? But that's the, 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 the brevity of this chapter and the content of this chapter has unfortunately led some people to kind of wonder, why is it there? And, and some to even say, it shouldn't be there. But I thank God it's there because I think there's something important going on here. This book testifies to a great reversal that takes place, the great reversal in which a a particular minority, the Jewish people, a rather small minority, was hated by a number of people. They were seen as deplorable and to be exterminated. And God reversed Everything. And so it was not the Jews who were exterminated, but it was instead the enemies of the Jews that were exterminated. God's seed was preserved. The promise was preserved. Salvation could continue to go forward. Everything is great, right? Wrong. We see here right off the bat, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land. Huh. This was another reversal. Because if we remember, when uh, Esther was made queen, there was a relief of taxes that took place. But here we see, even though uh, Esther has risen to a place of uh, great power within the household of Xerxes. And even though Mordecai has been elevated to second in command, even though the enemies of the Jews have been dispatched, particularly Haman, return of tax. Now, when we think of tax, we think of something different than this. The Hebrew word that is used here is one that is found uh, extensively throughout the scriptures, and it begins with the notion of forced labor. 
We see this used, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer it terms of peace. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. So that word that is translated forced labor is the same one here in Esther 10 that is translated tax. We see it again in Joshua 17 and Joshua 20. I'm just going to read from 17. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor or tax, but did not utterly drive them out. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 20, when they're talking about the administration of David's kingdom, um, one of my favorite guys, Benani, is mentioned, but more importantly in verse 24, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, the moss. And so this is not just you're paying your income taxes, um, however much you may like or dislike paying your income taxes or your property tax. This is typically a rather oppressive sort of tax. It refers to the forced labor or perhaps to the tribute that is used to support the extravagance of the king. And so there's a sense in which we end up exactly where we began in talking about the greatness of the king winking at the folly of the king. Big picture, zoom out just for a moment. And we should recognize that God's intention for government, as we saw in Romans 13, is that government actually work for the welfare of its citizens, uh, that it punishes the wicked, that it rewards the good, uh, that it has this idea of the common good, the common welfare of its people. But we recognize, as we talked about in Sunday school, that sin happens. And because sin has happened first in Adam, now we deal with the fact of oppressive government. In fact, we read, the reason we read from 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning is that we would recognize that he's, that Eli is not, or sorry, Samuel is not talking about some foreign king. He is talking about the future kings of Israel. And the people, in a sense, were rebelling against the Lord as their king. They wanted a king like the nations, and Samuel is warning them and saying, do you understand what you're asking for, people? Do you understand he's going to take your children? He's going to make your sons serve in the army. He's going to take your daughters, and he's going to put them to be servants within his palace. He's going to take your crops. He's going to take the not just any crops, the best of your crops. He's going to take the best of your animals for himself. And so even Samuel was warning the people of Israel about how governments quickly become oppressive, even the best governments that we choose with the best of intentions. Because those who lead governments are sinners, they often seek their own welfare. Oh, they promise you the moon, or in some cases a chicken in every pot. But what they tend to do is enrich 
themselves. Now, this is an extreme case, but I don't know if you've heard the name Omar Bongo before. Has anyone ever heard of the name Omar Bongo? No. Well, now you have. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Omar Bongo, and that is that he ruled the African nation of Gabon for 41 years. How's that for job security? 41 years in the same position. Okay, there was no room to advance after this. When he died in the 1990s, he owned 33 properties in Paris and Nice alone. Now, let this sink in for a moment. He's reigning in Africa. But he's wealthy enough to own 33 different properties in France. And that's just two cities in France. Any of you own 33 properties anywhere? No. You have to be incredibly rich to do this. Not only that, but they found some bank accounts with his name on them in New York. Okay, This is just the banks in New York. $138 million dollars. You might think that this was a rich country. It is not a rich country. But he made himself uber-rich off his country by treating the people basically like moss, forced labor for his benefit. And this is not the only case of these things taking place. It repeats again and again. And so as a result of this, we recognize that the Jews could not rest easy because Xerxes is still in power. Haman has been dispatched, but Xerxes, the one who allowed him to be so dangerous, is still in power. Haman was essentially used as the scapegoat by Xerxes. And so though everything changed... Nothing really changed. Meet the new boss. Same as the old boss, as the Who sang so many years ago. If you think about the election, though things changed, nothing really changed. If you were like me, and you woke up and you went on social media the next day, what you saw was people going, what happened to my America? It's the same America. Perhaps you might see it a little more clearly. Perhaps it might be a little more obvious to you. But these are really the same problems we've been dealing with for, let's see, 240 years. the same America, still cause for lament, still cause for rejoicing, depending on what we're looking at in that mix that's called America. And so these Jews woke up to the same Persia after they were done with their feasting. 
They could, if they wanted to, read about the acts of power and might of Xerxes that were written in the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. And so we see uh, here in a glimpse for just oh so briefly the fact that if you want to know about, if you wanted to know the historicity of all of this, you could have easily gone to the acts of the king, the chronicles of the king, looked up Xerxes, and you would have found all that Xerxes did, including the installation of Mordecai. Now, that document is lost to us, but it wasn't lost to the original audience. And so there, this is an argument for the historicity of these events. And some people want to, want to act as though it's a fairy tale, that it's made up. The author is indicating to us that it's not made up. It's not a fairy tale. But it's, the point is also that this is a return, again, to speaking of the glory of Persia, the glory of Xerxes, with, again, that little wink. We know it ain't all that great. We know that Xerxes is a misogynist. We know that Xerxes is most likely a racist. We know that he is a hedonist. We know all of these things about Xerxes that are not so good. And so there's always going to be caution amongst his people, amongst the Jewish people, as they lived. We should be able to uh, pull out from that and see that that is the way government is, period. The Westminster Confession of Faith in uh, chapter 23, paragraph 3, notes that it, one of the purposes of government is um, to protect the free exercise of, relig- of religion, Okay. Um, Yet as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. That's what government ought to do. But what we actually see is that government is often the beast crushing down true faith. And so Xerxes is in a sense, you know, we've talked about how both Esther and Mordecai point us to Jesus. Well, Xerxes points us to the Antichrist. All Leaders, unfortunately, point us in that direction. Okay? As I woke up the day after the election, I had a sense of relief in some ways because I believed that uh, Hillary Clinton would, because she has said these things, that she would force the church to change its views. And so I saw her as an immediate threat to the welfare of the church, using the power of persecution against the church. And so I breathed a sigh of relief. 
I don't have to go to jail yet. But that does not mean that Trump is not also a danger to the church. Instead of it being, I think, the persecuting power, I think there's perhaps a danger of the corruption of the soul of the church. Because there was the temptation to make the Faustian bargain of the lesser of two evils. If I can have a Morpheus moment, as I talked about in Sunday school, you can have the red pill or the blue pill. One will put you back into your daydream where you think all is well, and the other will help you see the truth of the matter. That because all governments are made up and run by fallen people, they will inevitably fall into corruption. The reality of the matter is is that both parties use the church for their benefit, as governments always have. And so when we think our side won or our side lost, I think we need to remember that that's not our side. So government was instituted to punish the wicked and reward the righteous, but we see, unfortunately, that often the exact opposite is what takes place. But it's not all bad here in Esther chapter 10. Believers in government seek the welfare of all people. It was not all as it once had been because Mordecai has been, in fact, elevated by Xerxes. And the events that that unfolded that brought him to this place were actually orchestrated by God. Not just the rising of Mordecai, but also the rising of Haman. We've got to remember and keep in mind what uh, Joseph said to his brothers. What you have intended for evil, God intended for good. And so the rising of Haman, he intended it, meaning Haman, his his rise, and Xerxes raising him up, Xerxes also intended this for evil. The plot against the Jews was intended for evil. But God is the one who intended it for good to remove Haman and have his undoing as well as the ending of the threat by the enemies of the Jews that was latent there already. And so we see that while Xerxes rules, God can still intend it for good. Mordecai provides a sense of counterbalance He's the counterbalance. He's the wisdom and restraint that balances off the foolish impulsiveness of Xerxes. So that the damage that Xerxes does, and there's damage, is mitigated, is contained to a degree. So if you want to pray for Trump, pray that he finds a Mordecai. Rain him in from his foolish impulses. 
We see here that Mordecai is declared as great among the Jews. And actually, as, as I was, even as I was reading it this morning, I could almost hear Trump talking in, in my head. He's great. He was the best guy ever. Um, he was huge, I say. Um, and the person who wrote this is, is declaring the greatness of Mordecai, and they're, they're laying it on a little thick, so to speak. And he sort of deserves it, because he was very instrumental in what God did. He was great among the Jews. He had a great reputation among his own people. He would have been suitable to be an elder in a church if he believed in Jesus. Okay, um, But he believed in the promise that he already had. Not only that, but he was popular with the multitude of his brothers. They looked up to him. And what we recognize from this, or we ought to recognize from this, is that in distinction to our Anabaptist brothers and sisters, we should say that Christians can serve in government. But just because government is tainted by sin doesn't mean that Christians can't work there. So don't worry, Nathan. You don't need to quit. Melissa, Steph, you don't need to quit next week. Isn't that good? You can work there. The Westminster Confession affirms this as well. Based on texts like this, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, in the managing whereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. It says, yeah, you can go, you can serve within the government, you can be a magistrate, but live out your faith in the midst of it. Don't forget who you are in Christ as you serve. Why was Mordecai so popular? Was it his dashing smile? I don't know if he smiled ever. He doesn't sound like one who smiled a whole lot. But it says he... It connects it to he sought the welfare of his people. He sought the good of the people that he served. He was, in a sense, we would call a good neighbor. He thought of their interests and not only of his own interests. When we came back from vacation, it, you know, usually we come home from vacation, and what we find is um, I come home first for, for summer vacation, and I find the um, cricket apocalypse in our house. Yeah, you know, all, all the dead carci of, of the crickets that have decided to swarm our home while we were gone. Well, this year I came home, and I'm expecting to find the apocalypse. Where are the crickets? And I found one. And we didn't know what in the world had gone on. And then one day, Amy was outside, and our, our neighbor, Josh, was uh, spraying the outside of his house with this uh, new um, chemical that he found. Um, and she goes, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, we came home, and we didn't find any crickets. And he goes, well, while you were away, I sprayed around your house. <laughs> he was a good neighbor. He was... Not just looking out for his house, but he looked out for our house. Josh is not a Christian. I pray that one day the Lord will bring him to himself. And I hope for those opportunities to speak the truth to him. Uh, but he was looking out for us. And that's what a good magistrate does 
looks out not for himself, but for his neighbor. And that's what Mordecai did. Not only that, but he spoke peace to all his people. And if we look at, take the Hebrew seriously here, basically you could say, he sought shalom for the seed. Because it doesn't say people. It says seed. Bringing us back to that promise of God to Abraham in Genesis 12. He was protecting the promise by protecting the seed so that Christ would be able to come and deliver his people and crush the head of the serpent. See, this all fits with this larger picture. But it's important for us to recognize that he sought the shalom of the seed in the midst of a pluralistic culture. Mordecai did not try to impose Levitical law on Persia. I would say he tried to rule in light of the moral law. But he was not trying to make Persia Jewish. This could be seen by some as a form of favoritism, but I think it should be seen as advocating for the equality of a principled minority. Wanting this small minority to have the same basic rights as everyone else within that culture. And that is a good thing. I'm sure that Mordecai was very familiar with Jeremiah 29 because he was living in the exile, and Jeremiah wrote that letter to the people in the exile, and he said, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord for its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so Mordecai worked for the welfare of Persia so that he would then have the welfare of Israel in the midst of Persia. And so we should pray for and work for, as we've talked about before, the welfare of Tucson because then we seek the welfare of God's people within Tucson. But what, what, I, what I take from this is the reality that government should not favor Christians and it shouldn't harm Christians either. I hope that makes sense. Unfortunately, in the reality of identity politics now, groups are played against one another rather than the pursuit of true justice. I played, I played subversive this week. I'm sure those of you who are into social media have heard what um, Twitter wants to do, what Twitter is doing, and that it is um, ending the accounts for people they consider to be part of the alt-right, which is a phrase I really hadn't heard of until recently. <laughs> so I know little about. Okay. And while I don't like racists... In fact, um, one of the three ways you can be removed from being my friend on Facebook is to embrace kinism, which is a form of racism. You say that to me, 
your hasta la vista. Okay? But this is a business saying it doesn't want to do business with particular groups of people. And my progressive friends are like, yeah, baby! Sorry, children. Don't mean to scare you. Okay? So they're all excited. I'm like, wait a minute, you weren't so excited when that baker and the photographer and everyone else also didn't want to serve certain people in, in particular ways. Why is it okay in one case, but not okay in the other case? Help me, I'm confused. Is it because might makes right? Is it because my opinion is what drives everything? And as long as you agree with me, you can do whatever in the world you want. But if you disagree with me, you can't do anything? That's not justice. And Christians should be working for justice. The same rules applying to everybody. Not two sets of rules, one for us and one for them. In other words, I believe, and I think the Scripture would teach, that Christians should have the same rights as atheists, who should have the same rights as Muslims, who should have the same rights as, as political progressives, who have the same rights as uh, political Neanderthals or alt-right or whatever you want to call them. should all have the same rights. And so Christians, uh, I think from what we see here, should not seek a privileged status or be granted a privileged status by Christians in power. In other words, Constantine was wrong. He was right to legitimize Christianity, but he was wrong to then make his administration Christian. And so believers working in government should seek the welfare of all people under them. Okay? So we should expect that in the classroom, the law enforcement field, or any other form of the public service. But let's get to the real thing here, is that the welfare of the church rests upon Christ. If we're not to look to Trump, and we're not to look to Hillary, where are we to look for our welfare? Where are we to look for the welfare of the church? It's interesting. Psalm 85 notes, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't that the phrase that is talked about with Mordecai? To his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. And the principal way that God speaks peace to his seed or to his people, is in Christ Jesus. We are told to look to Christ for our welfare in all things. And that means personally, individually, as well as corporately, as a community, as a church. And so we see that Christ's work for our salvation, or we ought to see, is not limited to his sin bearing upon the cross, but it also includes the reality of the ascension. Daniel 7, which came up a few times in our, um, our sermon series on John. I'll remind you, Daniel mentions, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so when Jesus ascends to heaven, this is fulfilled. He appears before the Father, and he is invested with all power and all authority over every nation to rule them according to his will and purpose. The ascension means that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father as the vice-regent over all of creation and all of the nations, just as we confess when we read the Nicene Creed. That Jesus is in charge. And though it may look like the Xerxes of our day, it's really Jesus. And he is the one who turns the things that they mean for evil into good for his people. And so we see as well in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, and he put all things, meaning he, God the Father, has put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things for the church. So Jesus is not just head of the church, Jesus is head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Jesus not only removes our sin, but he rules on our behalf so that the church becomes mature, not so that the church has it easy. And I think that's where we often go astray. As we forget, uh, or we, we, we're tempted to think that Jesus can't be seated on the throne because life is hard. But our big brother is on the throne. And sometimes that's precisely why life is hard. Because his goal is to mature you individually, as well as mature us corporately. His goal is not so that you can live fat and happy. His goal is that you reflect His beautiful glory by becoming mature and being conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's His goal. And it's a far better goal than being able to have every uh, technological device I want or every getting my way every time I want. And so what we see is that Jesus controls governments. He hardens and he softens leaders according to his purposes, but he does declare this peace or shalom to his seed. For instance, Isaiah 61 and speaking of the servant of the Lord, which is quoted by Jesus in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, uh, to the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And it continues. He's speaking and enacting shalom 
for his seed by faith. That all, as Paul says in, in Galatians, all who believe are the seed of Abraham and therefore heirs according to the promise and therefore sons of God. He sets us free. He binds our broken hearts because He's a Father who loves us. And Jesus comes and does this because He's a brother who loves us. He grants us liberty and He promises vengeance upon His enemies because He loves His people. And the Father loves His children. And one day He's going to take out the bully. But that day has not yet arrived. But we wait. And so in places like Isaiah 61, we see His glory and our good joined together. And so if you have received Christ by faith, I do remind you that you are not just sons of Abraham, but you are sons of God as well. And therefore, you can trust Him not just for your eternal salvation, but also for your earthly good, the welfare of yourself and the welfare and flourishing of the church as God defines it, not as we want to define it. That's a lot of heavy stuff for three verses. <laughs> Maybe you think I'm crazy. But I think it's all there. If we have ears to hear and hearts to understand. But we see that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Haman is gone, but Xerxes was still there. Xerxes is still there seeking his power, seeking his pleasure at everyone else's expense. Brothers and sisters, an election happened. But we discover that we struggle with the same old things. Nothing has changed. The real change is not about the shift in earthly powers, but in recognizing the shift that took place in spiritual powers with the ascension of Jesus. The shift within ourselves that must take place is one in which we are seeking after Christ, not to fulfill our will, but that His will may be done as we pray every Sunday. That we would, would place our hopes in Christ and not in any government, however pleasing to our political persuasion it might be. That we might be trusting Christ not just for our earthly good, but also for our eternal good. So I say that if your election hopes were utterly shattered, or if your election hopes were jubilantly satisfied, you need to turn your eyes upon Jesus, who is our only hope and stay who is our only anchor for the soul. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Esther. Thank you for the book of Esther at this time to help us think through what we're going through as strangers and aliens 
in America in 2016. Father, help us to listen to you. We confess that we are just like earthly children, that we tend to tune out our dads and go our own way. But we ask that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, would uh, be opening our ears so that we can listen. We'll be circumcising our hearts so that we can trust. So that whatever happens politically in the next four, eight, and more years, we recognize that the power that matters is the one that sits next to you. And that we would rejoice that our brother is on the throne. And that he rules, even in confusing ways, ultimately for our good. But only the Holy Spirit can produce that trust within us. And so work that in for your glory and our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.